Zesty provides an autonomous cloud experience by leveraging advanced AI technology to manage the cloud for you. Their AI reacts in real time to capacity changes and enables companies to maximize cloud efficiency and reduce their AWS bill by more than 50% completely hands-free. Cloud on autopilot. With Zesty, companies can spend less and do more. Check them out at zesty.co. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we have the story of an outage. Yeah, the story of an outage. We love these stories because they're lessons learned for the rest of us, and the story is brought to us by uh, the folks at bunny.net. Not that this is a sponsored show. It isn't. I just spotted this very transparent recounting of a two-hour outage that bunny.net had, and uh, it was up on Hacker News. There was some discussion about it, and I reached out to them and said, hey, you want to come on the podcast and tell this story? Because I just thought it was fascinating this set of cascading failures that were tied in with automation and DNS. And ugh, it was one of those failures that everybody saw. And what did you, what did you get out of this conversation, Ned? You know, I, I got a couple things out of it. One was that the ultimate test is production. Because no matter how much testing you do ahead of time, once that code rolls out into production, now you're testing in the real world. And it's really hard to test for everything ahead of time because you just you can't. <laughs> so that was one thing that was that was a big takeaway for me. And the other is when you're designing systems, you should really try to avoid circular dependencies. But sometimes you don't see those dependencies until you have a cascading failure. We get into the details with founder of Bunny.net, Dan Grafalnik Pelzel. Well, Dan, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And uh, as, as we said here in the intro, you're here to tell us a story about uh, Bunny.net and a very bad day that you had and were very transparent about in your blog. But we got to start at the beginning here. You're, you're a founder uh, or maybe the founder at Bunny.net. Would you just give us the high-level overview? We don't need like tons and tons of detail, but just so we have a big picture idea, what is Bunny.net? So Bunny.net actually started as Bunny CDN, and we had a rather humble goal of uh, building a, an affordable content delivery network. But Bunny.net is actually the evolution of that. So we have a much more ambitious goal of, of building a faster internet, or how we like to say it, making the internet hop faster. Uh, <laughs> so, there, yeah. so we're building a set of products on, on top of the CDN now. So it's really to help developers accelerate, uh, secure, and deliver content, and basically make the internet faster for everybody. Um, so in, in the modern world, you know, every millisecond matters, and it's, it's kind of our goal to make this global simple. Okay, so we get the high-level idea. Roughly stated, it's a CDN, and now you're building yep. additional products on the CDN, developer-friendly, and you're making the internet faster. Got it. There's a bunch of companies that are in this space. We know what you're trying to do at that high level. Now, you had a bad day, and it caught my attention that you had this bad day because uh, it made Hacker News, be this blog post that you wrote uh, explaining what all went wrong, because there was a, a couple of uh, hours or so that you guys were, were off the air pretty much. Now, people can go and read that blog, but still, to set up this conversation, if you could, again, we don't want to hit every detail, but just give us enough uh, telling us about your bad day so we kind of know what broke where you ended up so that you could fix it, and then uh, how you got back on the air. And then we'll, we'll, we'll drill into what all that means for us uh, once you've told that story. So go ahead, man. Tell us at the beginning. 
Yeah, so so the beginning is what it it it's usually it, it usually is. So you know, doing a routine update, just uh, you never sleep in a in a global product. Then we just deployed a, a, an update for the smart edge routing system. Then a few minutes later, it's just oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, where <laughs> everything's broken and um, took us a few minutes to realize what's going on. No, you said everything was broken, as in literally Bunny was not delivering content out of the CDN broken like that or broken in a different way? Uh, so so what happened was we, we dropped a bunch of traffic uh, in just a few seconds. So we went from about three, 250 gigabit, if I remember correctly, to, to something like 100. Um, so I would say everything was pretty much broken. And uh, yeah, then... Uh, panic first few seconds and how do we solve it? So <laughs> turns out we crashed the DNS when there was an update to the database. Uh, it ended up crashing all of the all of the DNS servers, which in turn crashed the CDN, obviously. Now, wh- wh- which DNS servers? Are these DNS servers that you use internally? Uh, yes. So, so this was our own network. So, <laughs> the the actual network was designed, you know, with uh, with oh. four different redundant clusters. There was unfortunately a bug in one of the in one of in one of the software libraries that we use inside of the DNS, and that just ended up exploding everything so you corrupted uh, you ended up corrupting through this this change all four of your clusters of dns servers so you had redundant corruption uh yep so (laughs) you know usually when you deploy something you would do it you know on a a small number of server first and then if if that goes well you do it more and more and then you go global Mm -hmm. and we really try to design all of our system around this but the issue here was this really happened in one of the libraries that uh, that we introduced recently because we 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 have this smart edge engine which um, which processes all of the data from our global traffic in 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 like almost real time and then we sync that to the DNS to, to kind of process and route accordingly so we can get good routing. And in the past, we use JSON here. So, and as you know, JSON is not really super, super efficient for for transmitting a, a huge amount of data. So, <laughs> um, you know, we had this spikes of CPU usage and garbage collection, and we thought let's do this a bit more efficiently. So we switched to to a library called called Binary Pack. Um, Not you know, something you wrote, are, just it was a third-party library that yeah, would be yeah. a more efficient alternative to JSON when you're ingesting data, yeah. Yep, so then, you know, things were great for a couple of weeks. We had much less CPU usage, we had much less traffic, we had less garbage collection. Um, you know, then as I wrote in the post, then suddenly we had nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, the most efficient so, thing, isn't isn't it? Uh, nothing is the yeah. most efficient. <laughs> well, so I, I think I kind of see what what happened here is you did the the slow rollout of this new library, and it seemed like everything yeah. was good. So yep. now you have this this library in place globally, and you roll yep. out this new update. And unbeknownst to you, there's a bug in the library that causes yep. corruption in the file. 
Yep. So so you know, despite despite the actual code being designed, work around that. Uh, there's no real way to catch and handle uh, a stack overflow exception. So you know, we we introduced this single point of failure through through basically a, a library that we didn't test well. So so literally, the DNS servers were crashing due to st- a stack overflow and what rebooting themselves yep. and just crashing over and over. Yep. So 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 the fun part there was you know. The fun part there was that uh, because the DNS crashed, then we couldn't deploy the DNS updates anymore. Um, because you couldn't find, you couldn't, what, do name resolution from to, to figure out where to actually push your updates to to fix the problem? So basically how how, how we design the system is the, the deployment system takes stuff from the CDN and storage, right? But then the CDN was that because because the DNS was that. So suddenly we're stuck in an endlessly rebooting loop of 100 servers that just kept pulling that broken file, broken file, and you know it, it was it was a bit chaotic. Um, you know we we tried to roll back, but the the file was the file was there, but the deploys didn't go through. So. Okay. Okay. So you have you had the older version of the file, but you're using yeah. a deployment system to redeploy the servers, and because the content distribution system relies on DNS to function, you can't do the distribution <laughs> to get the DNS servers back up to get your content delivery working again. So it's, yeah, it's just this very difficult uh, loop you're in. So how how do you break out of that? Because I would just throw my hands up in the air and, and go uh, and pour myself some whiskey or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, initially, initially we, we tried to just roll things back. Then when that fell, then, then we realized, okay, we are in big, big trouble, right? So okay. um, how do you get up from that? Well, hmm. the, the, the DNS crashing crash, the CDN, the CDN crashed the storage, then everything was rebooting, then that crashed the API as well. And um, how we ended up approaching this is really, we we did, we took all of the automation out and we just did like a manual deploy to all of the DNS, to, to, to a small number of DNS servers really to just get something back up. But then because the CDN was that, then that corrupted the, that that corrupted some of the files that were needed by the DNS again, which created more issues. So so we ended up just throwing that out, compiling new code just just to to get things running, re throwing out the geo routing at, uh, entirely. So so we just routed. <laughs> we have like we have a couple of big pops, and we just routed all of the traffic to like the biggest pop we had, and we were just like. Okay, let's just get DNS running, and then hopefully you can pull some updates. And that still didn't work, so we we just ended up throwing all of the deployment system into trash and just recoding the deployment system as well. Um, so that was probably in what everything happened in about two hours. Yeah, you guys, um, wow. so according we, to the blog, you were back up in about two hours, so my word. Yeah, yeah. So so we ended up just deploying using the, the storage from a third-party service, uh, pulling that with a DNS, then that 
slowly revived the CDN. Um, then the storage was extremely unhappy because we were pulling hundreds of gigabits from the CDN that was also trying to pull tens of gigabits from the storage and uh, probably the hard drives were crying and, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of a gradual climb back to normal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when stuff is on fire, despite trying to be, to keep your head above the water, you, you know, you make mistakes. So if you want to read, if you want to get all of the details, it's probably better to just read the, the blog, but, you know. Oh, yeah. You mentioned geocaching and that I know one of the things you mentioned in that blog post was the problem of uh, when you were trying to get some of the DNS back online, some of the georouting ended up sending a ton of traffic globally to a really small pop that wasn't able to handle the load, for example. Just stuff like that yeah. that just kept, you know, this this cascading set of different yep. failures and circumstances uh, that that happened. And you remind me of like what happens in a in a data center if you have a massive power outage and then you got to bring the data center back online. You don't just turn yep. the power on everywhere. You got to bring yeah. everything up a little at a time or you're just going to be crashing, 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 blowing circuits, yep. et cetera. Yeah. So, okay. You got it back in about two hours, it sounds like, which is an extraordinary effort. You you ended up writing about it in great detail. And folks, if you're listening and you want to know the details, we have a link in the show notes, day2cloud.io. Go to this episode and uh, click through the link there. Or just do a quick search for bunny.net and uh, an outage in this blog post that is very transparent will pop up and you can read in even more detail uh, by Dayan as he, as he covers what all went on. Um, but th this sets a good foundation for us, Dayan. We want to explore. You had a lot of automation there. You had a lot of things that are like, yeah, this is the way you'd build a system like this, this big complex monster that's global, managed by a small team. You'd want a lot of automation. You'd want a lot of systems that just the system takes care of itself. And yet you ran yep. into these challenges with this one unforeseen circumstance. Um, yep. So let, let's walk through, let's have an architecture discussion. Let's have a design discussion because uh, I know you also mentioned in the blog that you were exploring all the different ways to re-architect the system so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's start with the issue of dependencies. Uh, you ran into a state where one system impacted others in, in unforeseen ways. Did you take away any particular lessons or have thoughts on you know that challenge and uh, give some tips on what others of us could, with our own system to take care of, what we should be avoiding? Yeah, sure. I, I think I think starting Bunny, right? We we try to do everything right. You avoid internal dependencies because you know maybe maybe you're starting a project. It's not super stable yet. Okay, I'm not gonna use our storage. I might go down to deploy things. Let's use something ex external. But as soon as the project grows and you're more confident and you know you have a stable system that's been running for years. You know, you, you, it's an easy trap to get into this mindset of, okay, yeah, let we built all this cool technology and let let's use it right in our, in our own systems. And that's probably the biggest takeaway here was to really stick to that original idea um, that we had initially. You know, don't build your own internal systems on top of your internal systems. And I think mm. maybe Amazon was a good example a few years ago. You know, they. They have a super massive infrastructure, and it just all depends on itself. And usually, it's it's DNS, and that's why there's the joke. It's not DNS. There's no way it's DNS. 
It was DNS. DNS. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I think that's really the, the biggest issue of dependence is really the, this this trap, which is then furthermore more dangerous if you if you start to build circular dependencies, and that's that's really what happened in our case, right? So so we had one system rely on the other system, and and, and it just went down crumbling. So like you mentioned earlier with the electricity, right? So I was thinking. Sometimes it's just better to kill all of it mm. because the CDN is crashing the storage, right? So, you know, you you can't deploy anything from the storage. It's best to just like maybe sometimes kill all of it, just bring back a small section, maybe yeah. just the internal systems and, and, and gradually heal, heal everything. DNS is especially an interesting example here because a lot of the times... Uh, I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar, but uh, you know when, when you're running a big DNS cluster, you have a lot of resolvers sending queries so over and over. Mm-hmm. And when the DNS crashes, you know they or or it gets overloaded, they start to retry and retry, and that just creates more load. And you know if if you're in this situation, then you know sometimes it's just better to kill it because because it's just cascading over and over. Right, sure right. That's the yeah. right word, but uh... no. that's definitely the right word, and and we've seen that with like power grids, right? Where it's just uh, there is a circular dependency of some kind. One small section of the grid gets overloaded, shuts down, and then the cascading failures sweep out to the rest of the power grid and take everything down. Yep. And really, the only way to bring it back up successfully is to do it slowly and one piece at a time, so those dependencies don't start overlapping again. So it sounds like that that was one of your takeaways was, hey, realize what a bad situation we're in and bring things down and slowly back up in a controlled way. So you're not trying to fix the thing. It's like trying to fix a car that's on fire and already running, like maybe turn off the car and put out the fire (laughs) and then fix the problem. Right. DNS is an unusual one, as you said, Dayan, in that. Resolvers are just going to keep trying because there's nothing else they can do in that transaction until they resolve that host name. So they're just going to keep yep. trying to resolve that host name until the transaction gives up. But there can be an awful lot of queries that happen there, especially if you've got a short time to live for a particular yep. record. And those, those so you, you can't benefit from caching as much in, in a hierarchical structure, which sounds like you were dealing with that to some degree. Yep. Yikes. Uh, well, all DNS is maybe even a bit special because we do some super, super complex logic. So it's not just, you know, return a record. So that's mm. really easy. But if we yeah. do like a huge, huge amount of calculation in real time. So uh, yeah, something even, metrics driven for uh, yeah. geo distribution of queries and responses, that kind of thing. Because you're trying yeah. to, you're trying to uh, load people off to different pops. Yeah, we we do actually something quite quite interesting where we, we where we look where where every users users are going. So you know if if they don't have a lot of traffic in Australia, for example, it doesn't make sense to send you know one user to 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 the closest pop maybe because that closest pop might not have the file. But then if you get like one request per day there, it might make sense to just send them to Sydney because then you reduce the amount of cache misses and and 
we try to make a system that, that, that kind of monitors all of this in real time and, 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 and makes sure that the user gets the best performance possible for that. And we had some quite good results, but it's, it's unfortunately a very much, very intensive yeah. uh, uh, calculation logic in the back of that. And the amount of data that we transfer to the DNS is, you know, that, that that's kind of been what what was the root cause of of this issue, I guess. I was going to ask you why not AnyCast, but you just answered the question because the calculation you're doing has a lot of metrics and your algorithm is more complex than just just advertising mm-hmm. IP globally. And it's going to be great. You're you're really Woo. thinking hard about how to route people and the different conditions upon which you decide where to route people. Yeah. So you have to uh, have a you have to use DNS in that case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also do Anycast as well. It's in you know in the US maybe GeoDNS isn't that good, so we use Anycast there. Somewhere we use latency based. Somewhere we use um, just GeoDNS. You know, uh, really the, we really check each region. So so the DNS in our side is basically like the core engine of of you know. Performance, I would say. <laughs> we get what you're saying. It's it's the thing, but it's also you know the, the weak link, the Achilles heel. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, that happened to bite you in this case because everything depends on it to get your traffic uh, routed around to where it needs to go. Uh, yeah. Dan, another part of this story to me is automation. It feels like there's a lot that was happening in the background. You kick off some process, and a lot of things just happen. Which, when it all goes right, is amazing, and that's what we all want out of our uh, systems automation. But it is scary when it does things that you don't want it to do. Which, in this case, yeah. it was continuing to load a corrupted file, crash, reboot, and you know, and on and on in this endless loop. So, how do you add? How do you add fail safes to the process? What do you have to do to make sure that if things go bad for the automation process, that you can maintain control of the system? Yeah, so so first I want to add that I'm a huge fan of automation, but uh, in this case, so I, I think it's really hard to prevent this, but it is, it is possible. So what we try to do is anything that's automatable, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, everything that's possible to automate, we try to automate, but anything that's not possible to automatically, to, to reliably automate, is maybe not a good idea to automate. So what that means is whatever works 99.99% of the time is good, everything else is bad. If you can't if you can have predictable automation, it's probably just doing more bad than good, right? Right, right. Yeah, the, the cases where the automation is stable and consistent and reliable, that, that's awesome. It just does the thing that you want. But usually what I find is once the logic or the like the logic tree gets too complicated for a piece of automation, there's just too many potential failure scenarios in there. And it's better to just have a human do it because at least they can kind of apply some additional logic to it. I, I thought AI was going to fix all of this, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> well, might be interesting to see AI automate things until it decides, oh, something, something's working really well. Let's, uh, let's route everything to Madrid. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I think how we try to do this, we we just assume that everything will break, right? So you know, every part of the system should always assume that any other part of the system is you know dead always, Um, Mm -hmm. and just just try to do its own thing. 
Um, so we we really do a lot of, um, I would say, microservices. They're not really microservices. They're just separated services. And yeah, I think it does add complexity, but um, if done right, it can be really, it allows a small team such as uh, such as our team to run hundreds and hundreds of servers, you know, um, and it just runs just, you know, we very rarely touch anything. So the system just manages itself, all the load balancing, everything. It's just, you know, once things do go wrong, it's really, really dangerous. We pause this day two cloud podcast for an important message from one of our sponsors. Cloud is hard. Predicting cloud costs is even harder. What you need is a friend to help out. What you need is Zesty. Zesty uses AI to proactively adapt cloud resources to real-time application needs without human intervention. Now, I know, I I know, AI is a term that gets thrown around a lot. There's a lot of hype and a lot of disillusionment. And that is because vendors try to get AI to do everything instead of the thing that AI is actually good at. And that thing is monitoring and optimizing repetitive and identifiable events. Guess what cloud cost optimization is? A problem of monitoring and optimizing repetitive and identifiable events. Zesty is using real deal AI in the way it was intended. Zesty's technology leverages AI analysis and autonomous actions based on real-time cloud data streams to automatically purchase and sell AWS commitments. Or in much plainer English, Zesty looks at the real-time data from your cloud resources and then makes smart purchasing decisions to save you money. And you don't have to do anything. There's probably some alarm bells going off in your head You just handed Zesty an unlimited credit card and permission to use it. That's scary. Fortunately, Zesty offers a buyback guarantee for any over-provisioned commitment. You're not going to get stuck with a pile of reserved instances you don't need due to a glitch in the matrix. That's because Zesty makes money when you save money. That's right. Their fee is based on the savings they provided to you. If you're not saving money... Zesty isn't making money. That's what we call, friends, aligned interests. The result is an average savings of 50% on EC2 and a mere two minutes to onboard your account. If you'd like a friend who saves you time and money, go to Zesty.co and book a demo. That's Zesty.co to book a demo and put your cloud cost optimization on autopilot. Now back to the episode. You you mentioned a bunch of systems here, and and they're distributed systems. You're dealing with a bunch of servers, systems distributed across those servers in the form of, of not quite microservices, but you know, you know, compartmentalized services that do different things. I, my specialty is networking, and in networking and network design, we talk a lot about fate sharing and avoiding fate sharing and separating your failure domain so that if something breaks, it doesn't take the other thing with it. Um, you deal with distributed systems. That's the world you live in. All right, talk to us about fate sharing then. You had a, a set a, a system where effectively you ended up with one massive failure state because of all these dependencies across this distributed system. 
Is there, are you redesigning or rethinking some of your system at this point to uh, improve fate sharing in the distributed system? Yeah, we actually are. So, you know, as as I wrote at the end of the blog post, we, we've kind of dedicated a couple of weeks really to just rethink everything, what we did, uh, what we're doing, what we're going to do and how to fix this this issue. Because, um, you know, the, the DNS was kind of our single point of failure here, even though, you know, technically all the, Technically, every system was designed to work by itself, right? So it can assume everything's dead. But you know, if if the whole system collapses at once, then you have then then the DNS is kind of the weak link, right? So what we're doing right now is we have a really nice system in place that allows us to actually cut off DNS entirely. So this has been going on for for a couple of weeks, where we just go through all of our system like all of our internal system and anything that's very critical, we are just moving DNS out of it. So for example, all the CDNOs in the past used to kind of connect to each other, connect to the optimization system, for example, or the storage through DNS, right? Uh, now we're just actually removing all of that and making the, the nodes kind of, um, you know, independent. They they connect to the same API that the DNS does, not the DNS does, and we just have everything everywhere. Um, and every system just knows what to do with that. And if the other system dies, the, this system still has all everything it needs uh, well, to continue running. Is that something just like a, like a host file with static mappings or have you moved the name resolution off to a completely separate DNS infrastructure? The, the DNS infrastructure remains the same. So, mm. so it's not a host file because, well, it's not the same. The DNS structure isn't the same. Um, the DNS was now, it's not just reserved for, 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 you know, running the CDN, running the users, yep. um, doing the stuff it needs to do. But internally, we actually just connect to the API. And since we wrote the majority of our own software, because we we have some quite unique infrastructure, I would say, uh, we did it in a way where we can just, you know, do it in code, gather get a bunch of information from the API, save it locally, maybe in a database, uh, just keep it there just in case, and, you know, just load that, use that. Uh, so, for example, now every edge node knows where all the optimization servers are, and they just, you know, they can select one. Uh, they know if it's online and all of that. So, no, no DNS anymore. You, you don't and, have to go through a service discovery process. You're pre-populating yeah. that information. Yeah, there's a yeah. notion of this with software-defined networking in certain situations where, rather than asking routers and switches and so on to learn where remote destinations are, you pre-populate their forwarding tables of that information because you've got some central knowledge store that knows all that information. It just tells the yep. system, this is where you're going to find the things. And uh, yeah. gives you a bunch of pretty, pretty interesting capabilities too, because you can very granularly control what's going on if you have this kind of brain at the top that is pushing down into the system the way you're going to move through it. So you, you're yeah. doing. It sounds like you're doing that rather than lean into DNS. You're you're pre-populating. So you've you've eliminated the dependency on DNS, and it just occurs to me. Also, given yourself some interesting powers. 
Well, I was just going to say that it's actually, actually, we, we discovered some very interesting um, possibilities here. And then in turn, now we have some really quite exciting and unique projects going on thanks to this. So yeah, you're right, actually. So, uh, you know, it's also now better because, you know, the, the, the CDN can actually do load balancing, can do monitoring, um, a lot of the stuff there. Um, hmm. that, that's just the basics. So maybe some more interesting things we, we, we can do is, you know, since we know where everything is, uh, we can do retrying as well. Uh, so, so it's quite easy to, to go to one location, check if something's there. Um, maybe even the routing is better for, to the storage and the performance is better as well, because we don't need to do any lookups, especially mm -hmm. in a dynamic system that, that was adding a little bit of latency, but you know, the the faster the better. Yeah, right, right. Because your your DNS system was doing those the complicated logic for every lookup request that came in. Now that's bypassed. It just knows these are the storage servers I want to connect to. These are the deployment servers. How often is that information refreshed on the edge nodes, uh, and where does that refresh come from? So the, the the actual refresh right now comes from the like a central API, which which just has, I would say it's like database almost a database and an API, and then all of the logic happens on the edge. So how often this happens is now, because we don't really need to change to sync everything, right? We can just uh, push data in almost real time. So you know it mm. gives us a lot of opportunity now to you know ignore DNS caching, ignore anything we could just you know get everything in real time almost right right you, you're not relying on on a pull refresh kind of cycle you can just if there's new information just push it out to the edge nodes where it's pertinent to those edge nodes and and you have that up-to-date information you don't have to wait for a, a ttl to expire or, or yeah. a cache entry to expire that's kind of cool so it's almost like the failure provided an opportunity to improve your systems. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that that's 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 what you should do, right? When you when you fail, learn from it, right? So this for us is very exciting as well because we do a, a distributed edge storage, which basically hosts files around the world. And now the, the the CDN knows exactly you know where to connect. It doesn't need to do a lot of extra stuff. So yeah, quite cool. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say I'm happy that it happened, but, you know, <laughs> we, we did the, we, 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 we tried to make the best of it, I would say. Yeah. It, well, it's funny, the things that you don't think of that crop up during that failure scenario. I, I was dealing with a network that had a management network spread across every switch and router in the data center. We had a broadcast storm happen on that one management network and we lost the whole data center because of that. It was a very simple design flaw, but it didn't really occur to any of us. We were all worried about the security and segmentation. This is the management network. And so we managed this. We had all the ACLs in all the right place. And everything was perfect as far as that went, except that we had one network common to all these devices. And in that broadcast storm, the control plane CPU got clobbered on all these devices. Data center went down. It was horrifying. Things that you learn when the failure happens that you never thought about, which leads me to a question about testing. Dayan, how do you, what are your thoughts on testing? Because of course we don't want this to happen in production. But So in theory, if we improve our testing regimen, 
we find things before it blows up on us in production. So how how could we test better? Yeah, so I guess first I want to say always test as much as possible, right? But then only when it makes sense. I think maybe sometimes we're in a danger where we where we get super confident with testing and then we rush to production. So so I would say first first thing is not to go too confident with the testing. Now, it's important to also understand what you're testing, right? So in our case, for example, it was really easy to, to say, you know, this is stable, this works, you know, but then some garbage data just corrupted everything. Somebody running automated tests, you know, okay, everything's working fine, right? So if so, so it, I would say it's important that you 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 really think about how and what can go wrong, um, because in the end, right, the test will only show things that you already planned. Well, you're, you're, you know, for me with some of the code that I write, one of the things I tend to be lazy about are things like input sanitization. It's like, it's, it's just me. I'm the one who's, I know what I'm putting in there. It's fine. I can trust myself. And and so you, I tend to get lazy on that stuff. And of course, then the code makes it out into the wild to a wider audience. And you don't know what's going in there. You don't know if some someone's going to start poking at the code for vulnerabilities and so on. So there's, but then, but then also that question of getting your head around what, what could go wrong and then creating tests for that. Sometimes it's hard to know what could go wrong until it goes wrong and you've had that horrifying experience. So that's a, to yeah. me, that's just a, a bit of a tough one. Um, I think I have a good background here because uh, initially when I started, you know, when I started programming, I I was actually working on mobile apps. That was <laughs> over 10 years ago. So, you know, that gives you a really nice perspective where, you know, whatever is inputted or whatever the user puts in, it's garbage and it's broken. It's going to break your, <laughs> everything's going to break, right? So you just, you have this mindset and I, I have this mindset even now, right? So everything is broken. So yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's really important, but I think around testing, for example, maybe in our case, it's more interesting to talk about how to test the, the infrastructure, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, what testing code is one thing, but then, Testing how that code behaves under load is, you know, a different thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, at some point you have all the tests, everything's passing, you're confident, you know, you have like years and years of experience of what could go wrong. You you covered all the cases you ran, you know, you ran stuff on staging and it, everything's working fine. But then you then, then you put it to production and, you know, somebody breaks it in the first five minutes. So I think an incredibly important thing is where what also was kind of pointed out by Hacker News is to always do canary testing. So always start like on a couple of, of servers, maybe one server, just see how that goes, you know, then slowly go bigger before you go global. Uh, and I think in, this is maybe a bit better approach better way to to see things on, on a on such a complex system because stuff will break and it's important it doesn't all break at the same time um you know in our case we we always try to do this like right now we're testing a couple of servers with a new update uh you know we always do 
won DNS at the same time. So everybody was super upset at us, like, why didn't you just try to test on, on NS1 first or NS2? And, 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 and I'm reading that, I'm like, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that was that one dependency that kind of turned out to be like a single point of failure. And then again, you know, somebody pointed out, you know, why don't you do like, uh, I'm not sure what the phrase is, but, you know, test the library with garbage data. And again, you know, then you need that, then that brings you back to understanding what you're testing, right? So, you know, that's why, that's why it's important to, to test on small scale because the the you know unit testing integration testing in, is only as powerful as you know what you can think of in the beginning when when you're designing it anyway you know so you're basically catching bugs that you're trying to avoid anyway no and, and testing testing something running on a single server is one thing that is like you pass a first tier of test as soon as you move to distributed and you stick a load balancer in the mix that's another thing now if you add dns to it now you're testing kind of a whole different thing it's like there's components you can test and build out but as the system grows in complexity capability scalability the number of interdependencies there are and the number of interesting things that can go wrong grow yeah. and it gets harder and harder to get your head around the ways in which the network could fail or a slow failing hard drive could fail well hard drive whatever <laughs> SSD, you know what i'm saying <laughs> etc and so so testing is this thing where you've tested one scenario that's small and then when you expand the system to be distributed and scalable you're kind of testing something entirely different you know, you mentioned one hard drive drying, one hard drive dying. Now, you know, imagine having having five hundred servers, and then you know, mm. every every few minutes something is potentially dying, and you know, without automation, as we talked earlier, that would just be a really really bad situation. Right. I think one of the things that has been pointed out before, so this certainly is an original thought on on my part, but that. Anything that makes it through all of your testing and staging and QA ends up in production, and then you're, in effect, testing in production. So anybody who says they don't test <laughs> yes. in production hasn't realized that the ultimate test is running it in production. And for me, there's, a there's like diminishing returns on how much testing you do once you get past a certain point. Because the time and the cost of doing a full end-to-end -end test, like you would have to replicate your existing production system and run it side by side. That's a tremendous cost. So the, yeah. the benefit would have to, you know, be a corresponding weight with the cost of doing that level of testing. So mm -hmm. I guess at a certain point, you, you say this is enough testing and we'll just deal with whatever happens in production. Yeah, I mean... I think that's why I also mentioned to, to understand what you're testing, because, you know, if, if, if you're wasting huge amounts of time on something uh, and yeah, there, there, there can really be diminishing returns. And a lot of the times I would say issues happen under load that are really kind of hard to test, even yes. especially like in something like our case, right? We have, you know, we're, we're pushing, we're pushing ad servers to the, to to deliver like to read from from the hard drives at I don't know multiple gigabytes per second, right? 
Um, I know that that's really hard to actually test reliably because, you know, they're just being blasted with so much traffic. Uh, and sometimes even our customer, you know, has like a dying origin. And if it's a big customer, we just get like millions of connections and, you know, you're not going to test for that, at least not easily. Maybe once you're, once you're confident enough, maybe it's time to, to do a small production run and see how things go. You know, it's, it's interesting what you were pointing out, Ned, about the production is really the final test. It's not the test of all succeeded. Yay, we're ready for production. It's okay. Yeah. We've done what we can do. Now production is the thing. They and the, uh, right, the load you experience in production is probably unlike anything you're going to be able to manage to generate and test. And that's going to reveal certain problems. So, all right, I've been in this situation as well, going to the new thing and we're ready for production and management would always say, I want to, I want a rollback plan. If things go bad, we're going to roll back. It's like, I'll write one. But the reality is, I, I, I want to get your take on this. Rolling back, very often it's just impossible. You've gone forward and you've got to make the thing work now. Um, and rolling back can be pretty can be pretty tough depending on what you're trying to do, particularly with infrastructure upgrades. Uh, do you have a take on rollback plans, whether they're worthwhile or not? And uh, yeah, just what's your, what are your thoughts? So I would say in our case, we're, we're kind of lucky because most of the systems can be rolled back, but I understand that that's maybe a bit special. <laughs> uh, you know, if you, if you look at all the big outages, it's usually like a software bug or a software update, maybe on a router or something like that. Maybe somebody deployed one wrong character or something like that. And, you know, the whole thing kind of crumbles and, you know, then it's a bit harder to... To, to just roll back. And even in our case, you know, the the super solid rollback plan that I described just crumbled, right? I'm a big fan of trying to make sure that you can roll back. So uh even of even right now when we're deploying like you know we, we we're doing like a new kind of set of updates, we actually have a rollback in place that's just toggleable in the database. So we can just say, okay, go to the new system. Okay, something's broken, go to the old system, right? So that that kind of things are super useful, but maybe maybe it's a bit special case because you know if you're doing maybe software updates, then you know, once you switch things over, it's it's over, right? So it, I would say it depends, I guess. Yeah, um, and that's kind of my take. I'm a big fan of rollback plans as well. It forces you to think through the update that you're doing and how you would get back to a known good state if you could, but also reveals kind of the go, no go points where it's like, if we hit this button, we do this step, rolling back's going to be, oh, it's going to take us longer to roll back than it would just be to hammer through and try to make everything go if something goes goes south. So it's more complicated than uh, than all of that. Uh, yeah, I'll just roll back. It'll be fine. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just, these complex changes, especially can be, can be really tough. So I think maybe it depends, you know, where you're coming from. So if you're like a management position and you don't really understand, you know, what the rollback means and where it makes sense, then maybe you're just pushing for it. But, but maybe, you know, if, if you're actually designing the, the system as well, then you better understand what's actually rollbackable and, and, and 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 what's not and you know i've definitely been in a situation where i just press a button and uh 
close my eyes and hope everything doesn't, you know, explode in my face. And I, uh, <laughs> I hate myself for the next three months. And yeah, thankfully things went okay. But I, I, I understand your position that you described earlier. Well, there's a couple more things I wanted to get into before we close the show today. One is gray failures. You alluded to this earlier. What if you've got hundreds yeah. of servers out there? Something's broken probably constantly. So how yeah. do you, I mean, we can test for things that are like hard down. We know how to test those. Link is broken. Server crashes. Those things are easy to test for, but most failures aren't really like that. Something's slow or kind of dodgy or a network link's throwing errors here and there. How do you how do you consider design to accommodate that reality where you've got a partial failure in the system somewhere? Yeah, I, I guess I guess I like to joke that you know when you have five hundred servers, you everything is just on fire all the time. So uh, it it really brings me to automation, right? So I think the best way to approach this is just to assume that everything's broken and make sure that whatever can be broken is monitored in an automated way. So, you know, for example, a disk dies, you know, you get an alert, the system either shuts it off, makes sure it's not being rooted to or something like that. A server dies, you know, turn, take it off. It's really important to have this kind of automated monitoring, especially when you're doing something at scale and the reaction isn't simply send an alert to a console, but it is take an action to take that system out of, don't service requests, take this thing out of the pool, as opposed to yeah. relying on a human to take it out of the pool? Yeah, so in our case, it's it's maybe, maybe it's an interesting setup, I'm not sure. So what we do is when we, when we have, I don't know, an, an edge server, we have, I don't know, 10 disks on it, 16 disks on it and if one disk dies you know the, the the server itself keeps monitoring that and it tells the server like the, the nginx immediately look this disk is dead stop using it and then it also sends us an alert um you know and you know it's fine we we can keep that server running um you know meanwhile if we just sent an alert the server would be broken and spewing errors and you know that that's not that that's that that's a great way to 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 get depressed because you know you're just fixing everything all the time <laughs> and, and then 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 kind of it goes up a couple of levels as well right so you know a disk dies okay let's you know turn it off but then the server dies okay let's turn that off as well and we we do that on the DNS level. So, for example, the DNS monitors the the servers, and a third party service also monitors the servers. Um, and you know, if there's any issue there, we we just turn that server off. So the the DNS is smart enough to to you know to understand what's working, what's not, and and I think that gives us a really nice way of you know not fixing everything all the time because it just happens automatically. But that's also important, I think, here to mention maybe that it's maybe important not to trust all of the monitoring sometimes. So it, you you can end up in a situation where you get a false positive mm -hmm. and, you know, suddenly everything is burning again just because, you know, maybe a third party service or your own service, you know, 
report that everything's dead for some reason. So test the tests. <laughs> oh, that, now that's really interesting. Um, you, you're reminding me of my days dealing with load balancers and writing sufficiently complex and appropriate tests to get an accurate assessment back of the service that you were testing which took some doing. You can't just like, yeah. is there a TCP listener there? Yeah. What does that prove to you? Nothing if you're trying to monitor a web <laughs> service. It proves there's a listener yeah. out there. It doesn't prove that the server is delivering data or it's the data that you want or any of the rest of it. You got to have a much more complicated test you know, to pull that off. And, and the, the false positive one is, is interesting. This service is dead. No, it isn't. It's fine. Well, yeah. Right. Test the tests. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounds bizarre, but you know, sometimes actually, people use the test, the test as a as an example of somebody doing something stupid. But sometimes it actually makes sense, <laughs> <laughs> especially with the more complex of a test that you might have. Well, um, okay, one more question, Dayan, um, and and that goes back to getting your design reviewed, recognizing things like single points of failure. How do you? How do you do that? Um, and I ask it in this context. I've done a lot of designs where sometimes you're really close to it. And because you've just been in so many days, you've been writing documents and thinking, and there's a whiteboard, and there's diagrams, and there's meetings, and you're tired, and you're like, this is good, right? It's good. It's golden. We thought of all the things. We figured it out. This design, we, we nailed it. But then you put it in production, and you didn't nail it because you forgot something, something you didn't see. How do you How do you? How do you prevent that from happening? So you see the spots, the big design concerns. Do you bring in a, a you know a consultant, a third party to kind of look at things, or you know leave it for a week and come back? Do you have a strategy for that? I think the most important part is actually the design phase. You know, even if you kind of try to fix it after the design phase, chances are you know that uh, things might already be in a state where it's hard to pull back. So I think that the, the, the planning and designing itself is probably the most important stage here. And I would say the best way to describe, <laughs> the best way to describe it is uh, I have 10 years plus experience in breaking things. And, you know, <laughs> um, the more you break, the more you, um, the more you learn what can go wrong. So <laughs> Um, then, 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 with 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 years and years of breaking things, you 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 kind of get like an intuition, or maybe I'm not sure that's the right word, but you like that is. I what think could that's go right. wrong. Um, but I, that that's that's more about the design phase, right? So maybe to actually answer your question a bit better, I would say it's really good to just make something. And before you put it live, like you said, just walk away maybe for a couple of days, mm. then look at it again. And magically, you know, usually we'll find something that you completely miss because, um, you know, that's just how we work. We really get into the zone, you know, everything's working, everything's magical. You know, that just happened to me recently. You know, I'm, I'm working on like a project you know, it's it's a it's an amazing piece of technology. It's 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 really amazing. Everything works. I tested everything like you know, fifty times. Then you turn it on and it just starts smoking. You know, so so it's really important, I think, to walk away and maybe you know be be patient. Don't rush. Um, 
so I would say maybe our our cases we're still a small team, so you know third parties are maybe a bit too much for us. But if you're in a bigger company, maybe that that that, that makes more sense. But I think um, you know somebody third party can bring an extra set of eyes, an extra set of you know thinking that you might not have. But it's uh, if you have a super complex system, maybe like ours. You know, it can take quite some time explaining and understanding how it actually works. So, so it's, I would yeah. say it's maybe easier to to spot stuff internally. Yeah, there's there's a there's a trade off there. But I, even if it's not an an external source, maybe it's someone else in the in the company that you work with. It's like, hey, can you come over for a couple hours? I want to show you something that we're kicking around, and I want you to shoot holes in it. Just and you know, maybe they don't don't have your area of expertise exactly, but they know enough to be able to shoot some holes in it, show you the things yeah. you're not seeing. Cause that's one of the things I learned in, in design is the more people you involve with their shared pool of experiences, the more likely some of these experiences are going to come out like, Oh, you're choosing that. Maybe yeah. you want to do it like this. Cause let me tell you a story, you know, and then all of these little things percolate up and it ends up with you, you distill the design down through all these different people and end up with something ultimately that's better than what you started off with because you're using and leveraging all these other experiences of all these other people. It's just an ego thing. Some people are like, I don't want anyone else to look at it because I'm awesome. And you know, you got to get over that and know that you can just benefit from what other people bring to the table. And that third party perspective yeah. is going to see things you don't see. Yep. 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 That makes sense. And hopefully what happened worse will actually help somebody to maybe avoid a similar fate. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you're right. I, I think maybe, um, you know, just even just presenting the idea with somebody and just, you know, giving like a high breakdown is already enough for somebody to just go, oh, yeah. It, it can be. Yeah, certainly can be. Well, mm -hmm. Dan, I, man, we appreciate you coming on and having this chat. Uh, this This was good. Lessons learned. You guys are transparent, which... With all the companies that put a spin on what really happens, you kind of don't know. And you're like, mm, you know, I don't know if I can trust that response. You guys being so transparent and clear about what happened at uh, bunny.net, I think was pretty awesome. So if you're out there listening to this and you want to read, again, just go to bunny.net, look at the blog. There's an article called uh, The Stack Overflow of Death, DNS Collapse, that today and our guest here today wrote. Um, have a have a read for even more detail on what happened and uh, and then then send them some virtual hugs out on a Twitter because uh, it was a, it was a rough couple of hours for those <laughs> folks. One of those outages where people noticed it was a thing that got seen. So, uh, but yeah. then again, transparency is is huge, Dan. Uh, Dan, if people want to follow you or Bunny.net on the internet, how might they do that? Uh, well, they can either follow me on Twitter. I'm not super active. I'm just I'm I'm mostly just focused uh, on on bringing the company. Uh, to the next level, we have some really exciting projects right now. But uh, maybe, maybe follow Bunny.net on Twitter instead. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, we'll have uh, links to all of that, the article, and so on on 
the show notes, day2cloud.io, and you can also find that at uh, packetpushers.net. So, Dan, thanks very much for appearing today on Day2Cloud. And if you've been listening all the way through to this uh, deep dive on how sometimes things can go wrong and how to make them better, hey, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You are awesome. If you have suggestions for future shows, we do want to hear them, Ned and I do. You can hit us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or fill out the form on Ned's fancy and rebooted website, nedinthecloud.com. Packet Pushers, this show is part of the Packet Pushers podcast network. Well, the Packet Pushers have a weekly newsletter for you, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the best stuff we find on the internet. We find all kinds of articles that explain things, give concepts, uh, news that would be interesting to engineers, etc. And then we write our own feature articles and commentary in there. It's uh, free, it's entertaining, it, it doesn't suck. We promise, and we respect your privacy. We don't sell the mailing list to anybody or anything. It's just for, for the community. That's really what it's all about. Get the next issue at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 